Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. I am super excited to bring you this show today because Number one, we've got a real estate mortgage finance ninja on the show, but also um, I've been stalking him for a while and I love just uh, his mindset. I love the way that he approaches things. I love the information that uh, you know Scott brings. And also I was telling him off camera, there's a lot of people that I know that have consistently brought up uh, Scott's name and the impact that he's had on their life. And so I think I think this is a timely show. I think it's going to be uh, very valuable as we just kind of look at what's going on in the world and the timing of real estate and everything else that's out there. Uh, so Scott Groves, I appreciate you joining me, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. I don't I don't know I don't know how much impact I've had, but uh, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, you know, well, I was the the one of the first times that I heard it. Um, it you know, Andy. Do you know Andy? Yeah. Yeah. So I was at a front row dad's thing and he was just, he was talking about how he had, you know, hired you and what an impact you made. And then from there, I don't know if it was just my reticular activator being activated, but it was like seeing the yellow Mustang when I bought the Mustang pretty soon, all I was hearing about was Scott Grove. So um, yeah, no, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's been huge. So let's jump into the questions and then we'll get to the meat of all this. So uh, if you could narrow it down to one thing that has had the greatest impact on your success, what would that be? That's a great question. Um, it's got to be habits, right? Like our daily habits affect our lives more than anything, whether or not you're trying to become the person who brushes their teeth every day or says, I love you to their wife every day, or, you know, work out every day or eat a little bit better, or do lead generation, which is what I wrote my book on. It doesn't really matter what you're trying to get better at. Uh, it's those, it's those daily habits that I think really define us. So you know, I, I fall in and out of practice of doing a lot of things I say that I want to do. Uh, but when I know that like I'm in a funk or one of my coaching clients is in a funk or one of the realtors I work with and the mortgage business is in a funk, I'm just like, Hey man, like what's going on with your daily habits? You get to the gym, talking to your spouse, eating okay, drinking water, brushing your teeth. It's like, it's so silly. I mean, it's like what I tell my five-year-old, but it works. <laughs> so yeah, that's, the, that's the number one thing. I love it. And that's why like, I'm super excited to get into you know, the mind of Scott just with everything that we've got going on. But as I've watched some of your YouTube videos and stuff over the last couple of months since we've been kind of connected and stuff, I just love your perspective. And you were there was actually a YouTube video that I watched from like two years ago or something. And you were talking about, maybe it wasn't that long ago, but you were talking about something that you were saying in 2014. And so even when you're talking about the habits and the consistency, and you were talking about some chart that you had shared then or some you know, structure or whatever. It's really just that consistency and the same thing over and over, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm just rehashing a bunch of stuff that people much smarter and more successful than me, like Darian Hardy have talked about in the compound effect or, uh, uh, you know, any book about daily habits or kind of the power of compounding returns. You know, we have a mutual friend, Justin Donald, that talks about lifestyle investing and how do you just start making little steps towards uh, investing to a point where, you know, you then have the financial freedom. Your whole podcast about investing these small compounding effects of like, hey man, you know, no one becomes a millionaire unless you win the lotto. I, you know, I have a second home up in Henderson, Nevada. So I do see some of the people that become, uh, 
millionaires in the in the pool of a one-handed one-armed bandit but you know for for all of us and the stuff that you preach it's like it's really just those consistencies that lead to boom one day you wake up and it's like oh somebody's watching a video from 2016 that was referencing a video from 2014 that's getting me some traction and getting me some business and then people are like wow how are you getting business from youtube and facebook it's like well you do it every day for eight years and then people find you you know there's, there's no big secret it's just doing the work so good i love it what was your greatest setback and what did you learn from it oh uh greatest setback is you know the same origin story every loan officer has which is 2008 2009 i, I can't remember if it was 2008 or 2009, but one of those years I made $18,000. And, you know, I was living on a friend's couch. Actually, I was living on one of my dad's friend's couch, renting out the house that I had bought, trying to avoid bankruptcy, which in retrospect, maybe I should have just claimed to bankruptcy because I really spent my 30s paying off all the debt I accumulated in my 20s. Um, But, you know, going from making a decent living, you know, I wasn't like riding high on the hog. Uh, but I was doing okay in the 2000s, you know, working for Washington Mutual. And then when everything went to hell and you couldn't get a loan done to save your life, even for people that were actually qualified and Washington Mutual failed and the 401k went to zero because of course my 401k was all in Washington Mutual stock. Like I was 20 years old, like banks don't fail. Why wouldn't you hundred percent invest in the company that you work for? Like they're doing great things. So, you know, going legitimately broke and then close to a million dollars into debt. And then, you know, I wasn't even making enough money to make my car payment, much less my mortgage payment. So really just up shit's Creek. And, um, you know, coming out of that, it seemed like such a distant memory. Like, like some of the things, some of the feelings around that are still kind of like painful and embarrassing and shameful, but like, I can't really remember what happened for that 18 months or two years. And it's like, you just got to keep going, right? I, I refuse to live off my parents, which I don't think I could because they don't have enough money. I refuse to live off the government because that's just not how I was raised. So it's like, well, you got to figure something out. So you just kind of keep moving forward. And I think uh, I think that's kind of been lost like that, you know, that go West young man, American entrepreneurial adventurous spirit. I think that's been lost on a lot of people of like, hey, dude, I get it, man. Like some people are just, born in shitty circumstances. Some people get bad luck. Some people have a lot of bad business breaks. I think people in my family have been under all three of those flags, but it's like, if you just keep moving forward, like good things are going to happen eventually. And again, I'm just, I'm rehashing a lot of stuff that goes probably all the way back to lessons in like the Bible of like, Hey man, like bad shit's going to happen. And if you just keep pressing forward and like one foot in front of the other, eventually like it gets better and then good things happen and then amazing things happen. And then like, hopefully you have enough, you know, impact or wealth or time or whatever the most important metric is for you. So you can start helping other people put their foot forward. And like, that's how it's all supposed to work. And uh, for whatever reason, I think we've gotten away from that a lot in America. Yeah. You know, you had mentioned Justin Donald too, and he came and spoke to our couples mastermind a few weeks ago and there was a, one of the couples in there had uh, has asked a question about a, a recent real estate deal that they did. And we started talking and Justin said, and this kind of reminded me of what you were saying. He said, there's usually like two ends of the spectrum and then there's the middle. And usually we have like this worst case scenario and then we have a best case scenario. And then somewhere in the middle is usually where things play out. And as you were talking about that, just, you know, I, I think we have lost some of that. And I would agree with what you said. Just keeping moving through it. Like, here's worst case scenario. This is where you were at, right? 
But, and a lot of people stop there and whether it's filing bankruptcy or just throwing up their hands, there's nothing I can do about this. And I've been there probably three or four times, like specific times in my life where I knew I wanted to give up, but actually like just keeping moving through it. And it's interesting, like correlating that to what Justin said, because if you give up at that point in time, then you are at worst case scenario. And, you know, we've got this idea about best case scenario, but moving through that process is where you get probably not to best case scenario, but at least to somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Like just better, right. Just better. Um, you know, we, I think we might have another mutual friend in common, John Berghoff, where his favorite word is Kaizen. He named his son Kaizen. His motorcycle license plate is Kaizen. His car license plate is Kaizen. Like everything in his life is Kaizen. And, um, that's the, the Japanese term kind of popularized by Toyota of kind of like on-time management, just getting a little bit better, constant improvement. And Kaizen is just this like, basically Japanese philosophy. It's a word that encompasses the philosophy. Like if you just keep moving forward and getting a little bit better every day, the the end results within a, you know, a year, a decade, a lifetime are like exponential. Right. But I think people just get stuck in this rut where like, instead of having a 20 year career, they live the same year over and over and over again, 20 times. And it's like, well, if you're not having any growth, if you're not trying anything new, if you're not getting outside your comfort zone, like, what's the point? If that's the case, you know, go get a, a government union job. That's cool. That's for a lot of people and make your $67,248 a year and just do that. And that's fine. And for a lot of people, that's kind of the best that they want to do or the best that they could do based on their skill set. Uh, but I think for a lot of people, especially Americans who have an insane opportunity still living in this country, even though we have a ton of problems, um, it's like, just keep moving forward and improving. And like something good is going to happen. Yeah. I love it. What is the piece of advice you find yourself sharing the most? Um, the piece of advice I find myself sharing the most is from an old Prudential investment commercial, you know, Prudential, the rock. And there was like waves crashing across the rock. And this is back in the day when like investment firms would actually advertise rates of return. They would be like, get into our Magellan mutual fund that's returned 8.79% for 10 years. And I just remember Prudential, and I must have been a teenager when this happened. So I think I was destined to work in finance. Prudential changed their marketing from uh, you know advertising rates and returns and programs and different mutual funds and the names of fancy uh, uh, hedge fund managers or whatever to like an idea of planning. And I remember their line is nobody plans to fail. You simply fail to plan, mm. get in touch with a prudential financial planner or whatnot. And I, I don't even think that company exists anymore. I think prudential, uh, investors got absorbed by somebody and now they just have a mutual fund behind the scenes, but that has stuck with me since I think I was a teenager and it was, you know, nobody plans to fail. They just fail to plan. And that could go into a whole coaching curriculum on its own of like, okay, once you have a plan, then you've got to memorialize that plan. Then you have to have checklists for different systems in your business. So just that concept of like, yeah, nobody wakes up in the morning and be like, yep, going to be an epic failure today at work. <laughs> but if, if you don't have a plan, if you don't have a calendar, if you don't have like the three big rocks you're planning to move, or you don't have a project you're working on, or you haven't cleared your decks to do the number one activity that's going to make you money or sell the widget or whatever, like if you don't have a plan, then you're going to fail because nobody plans to fail, but they a hundred percent, many, many, many times, not hundred percent, many of us, many times, we fail to plan. And when you, when you have that failure to plan, it's like, it's just, it all breaks down and everything goes to shit. So that that's probably my favorite piece of advice. And like my favorite, uh, ism or maxim that got stuck in my head at a very young age. 
Well, that's a good place for us to shift to the million dollar question. So like, what, what do we plan for now? Like, this is crazy time. And I'm so excited to just kind of, you know, open, open the Pandora's box of conversation around this. So just tying it together, like you were talking about 2008 and, you know, what you experienced then. And, um, I'll, I'll let you, you know, verify whether you think this is true or not, but I, I think we're not, we're in a completely different environment than we were then. Right. You know, I, I'm trying to balance two thoughts. One is this very academic book I read after the crash of 2008, 2009. It was called um, "It was called This Time It'll Be Different," and it was a very academic take. The book's like 600 pages, super dense. I mean, it took me over almost a year to get through it, and it was all about you know going back from the you know run up on uh, tulip prices during the Middle Ages or the Renaissance, whatever that was, all the way up until this most recent uh, real estate crash, how humans are really good at convincing ourselves that, oh, this, this time it's different. You know, this time it's the tech sector or this time, like these key performance indicators don't matter. So I'm trying to balance that, like thinking like, hey, remember and plan just in case 2008 is for real and this time it'll be different, which it won't. And looking objectively at the things that are actually going on, you know? So when we talk about every day I get a question from a client because since I'm the finance guy, they want to ask me versus their realtor. Uh, I do home loans. So I'm talking to people all the time about their finances and buying a house. They're like, Scott, are we in a housing bubble? Are we paying too much for this house? And I'm like, well, there's a couple of things that are significantly different than 2009, where all of us have this post-traumatic stress syndrome from the financial markets. One, for the last you know 14 years, everybody has been properly underwritten. They've got skin in the game. They've got real down payments. They've got real equity. They've got a real safety net in what they owe on the house versus what the house is worth, right? And everybody's been properly vetted with income documentation and whatnot. So that's different. Um, number two, the supply versus demand ratio. You know, in 2007, 2008, 2006, 2005, around there, you know, they, if you remember, they were building housing tracks in Arizona, Nevada, as fast as you could. And there was a huge surplus of supply of housing. Whereas right now we're filming this the first quarter here of 2022, um, there's a huge shortage of inventory. So it's like you have people being properly underwritten, number one, you have a lack of supply and way too much demand, number two. And then number three, you know, and, and I don't care where you stand politically, this is just fact, over the last two years, like 40% of all the US dollars in circulation have been printed in the last two years under Trump and Biden and the build back better plus the COVID relief plus all this bullshit spending that we probably didn't have to do. So 40% of new dollars or sorry, 40% of all dollars going into the economy brand new in the last two years, that's going to create these huge inflationary forces that make stuff more expensive. And like many of the pundits, which to be clear, I barely graduated high school. Like I was supposed to, I was supposed to not graduate high school because I discovered wrestling, surfing, and women my senior year of high school, and had like fifty-five absences. So my mom had to go throw herself on the mercy of the school board to get me to graduate. So you know, take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. But you know, the the Krugmans of the world, the people that are supposed to be in the know, who for the last year have been saying, "Oh no, no, this inflationary is transitory. It's going to go away. Prices are going to come back down." They're like, "Ooh," now they're saying. Well, I guess if the restaurant reprints the menu and makes the lobster dinner $28 instead of $22, they're probably not bringing prices back down and gas prices aren't coming back down. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I can't go back to my employees and be like, hey, you know that raise I gave you two years ago when inflation was through the roof? Well, now inflation's cooling down. I'm going to go ahead and give you a pay cut. 
yeah, right. They'll quit tomorrow. So it's like this inflation is there to stay, which means rising housing prices, or at least where they've kind of topped out now in 2022, I think they're there to stay. And it's like, again, I'm trying to balance that. You know, I'm trying not to be naive just because I work in the industry and I want things to stay good, but it's like balancing that book this time, things will be different. And the reality of our situation I still think we have a couple of years left of run-up, whether that be in the stock market, in housing, whatnot, because there's just these population you know, forces and these inflationary forces that I believe are going to continue to make things more expensive. Now, it's all paper money bullshit, right? Like I'm not actually richer because my house is worth 800000 instead of 700000 if all of a sudden milk and a pair of Levi's and a MacBook and an iPhone, if all these things are equally more expensive, like who cares? I'm just paying more and I look rich on paper, but I kind of think that's what the government wants. They want us all to feel good about being rich on paper when actually our money's not going any further. So I don't know. I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but that's kind of how I feel. No, I, I love it. It's good. And you know, I, we're, we're all in our world every day. I, I have a fund and an investment uh, in the MHP space, we've got we we've sold a lot of it off, but still we have like 750 homes that we got to bring in. And I, I'm sitting here thinking about this just from the perspective of what you're saying. In manufactured housing, it used to take us four to eight weeks to get a home, and then you know we'd have some challenges getting a, a vendor to set the home and everything else. So even all in, maybe maybe it takes us 16 weeks. Right now they're like 12 to 18 months out, and this is these are factory homes that are you know I mean this is this is quick, and so. When I think about the impact that's wreaking havoc on our business model, or at least was, I think we've solved a lot of this. But then I look at the, you know, the timeline from development and cities being shut down where they're not getting, you know, developments up and through zoning and planning as quickly. And 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 if it takes this long to build a manufactured home, how much longer is it going to take to build these houses? I'm I mean, from a supply perspective, if it's disrupted that much in a manufacturing plant, how much more so in the field? Because it's always like 20%. Or eighty percent more, and so I, I'm kind of with you in that sense um, when it comes to you know even just home, like how long until you could even solve this problem? But the thing that I really want to pick your brain about, um, what are you seeing? Because we have wages, we have you know all this money being printed and issues. What are you seeing on approvals? Because that's the thing that I'm like starting to try to wrap my brain around twofold. Number one as a landlord, as an investor, but number two, even as a guy that's building a house here in Austin, Texas, um, I'm, I'm trying to reconcile all of this because how, if prices are doubling over a three or four or five year period, literally I built my house in Arizona that I just sold in last year. We bought it in 2018. We built it for, let's say 900,000 and I sold it for almost 1.8, almost doubled in that period of time. And so the question that I have in my brain, and again, twofold, homeowner versus an investor, how, how are approvals going to keep up? Like people's wages and income, what's going on there? You know, it's, it's crazy. And maybe this little anecdotal story will, will kind of fill in some of the gaps. I talked to a, uh, a gal lover. She's a client of ours and we had been working on her pre-approval for a long time because she was kind of in and out of the market, in and out of the market. We approved her. She has very high income, very high wage earner. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I called her, I was like, Hey, I know you wanted a pre-approval for a million. 
Uh, she's buying in Southern California. But just to be clear, you're approved up to like almost 2 million. And usually clients are looking to buy at the top of their price range. That's kind of just the way the math always works out. I just want to make sure that we didn't like miss the mark or I don't want to send you a pre-approval for a million. Turns out you find a house for 1.5 and we lose the deal because I didn't inform you. She's like, no, 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 Scott, no way, no how under any circumstances am I spending more than a million dollars on a house? Um, that's my target. That's where I've come up with my comfort level for my monthly payment, blah, 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 on and on and on. Okay, cool. She's like, hey, but just out of curiosity, could you send me the $2 million pre-approval letter? Because I want to send it to my dad and be like, look at me, like I could buy a $2 million home. So I'm like, yeah, sure. So I sent her the $2 million pre-approval letter. Don't hear from her for like five or six weeks. She emails me on a Sunday night. She's like, hey, Scott, I used your $2 million pre-approval letter. We're under contract for a million three eighty. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, cool. Like, I'll get started tomorrow. Da, da, da. Just out of curiosity, I want to make sure, you know, financing an extra $300,000, you're going to be looking at like $1,700 a month, higher payment. She's like, no, no, no. You know, I remembered I, I was like an early employee or not early, but, you know, maybe employee 4,000 at Facebook. And I've got all this Facebook stock options. Who knows what's going to happen with that company? So I'm just going to liquidate like half a million dollars of um, Facebook stock and put it down on the house. So I have the same size mortgage and the same size payment. And, and this was the part that got me. She's like, and you know, that's not real money anyway, because it was like just stock options from a job that I have. So why not liquidate it and put it into a house that I want, which by the way, needed about $100,000 of work. So her budget went from no way, no how more than a million to a million four eighty. Because in her mind, there was just this free, funny money out there. Mm. And I cannot tell you whether it's the you know, um, lower income 300,000 buyer in you know, northern Reno or uh, you know, far east kind of greater Arizona, Phoenix metropolitan area, who's getting $20,000 from grandma out of the stock market because she's had a good 10 years in the market, or whether it's this gal, you know, uh, liquidating $500,000 in Facebook stock, or whether it's uh, grandma is wealthy, is selling a property, is like, hey, I can't take it with me. I don't trust Trump. I don't trust Biden, whoever they hate in the political sphere. I'm just going to give, you know, little Susie $700,000 down on her house. There's a lot of this, like what people are kind of referring to as funny money or not real money that they're just putting into housing. So, you know, for eight years, I was like, hey, guys, the sky is falling. I was like chicken little. The government is out of ways to keep rates artificially low. There's no way the government can continue to go this far into debt. The stock market just can't keep having this kind of run up. Like the, the party is going to end and somebody is going to get stuck, you know, with the music off without a chair. And somehow there just continues to be this, this ongoing rolling funny money where people that can afford it, they can afford it. And the people that are priced out, the reality is there's just not an inv enough inventory there for them to even have a fighting chance. So they're just continuing to be renters or live with parents or whatnot. So it really is kind of like, you know, war and peace, like a tale or uh, a tale of two cities, right? The best of times, the worst of times where it's like those that got it, they've got it. And they're finding a way to navigate it and buy more expensive houses. And those that are locked out of the market, they're locked out of the market. And I don't see them coming back into the market anytime soon, which is, which is kind of sad and a little bit scary. Do you think that we'll see, I, I know we're already seeing it to some degree, but do you think that you're going to see some further government intervention when it comes to whether it's length of mortgages or trying to figure out, because I mean, obviously interest rates are one thing they can pull, but what are the other tools? Do you, do you think we'll see more of that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think governments are trying to solve the problem, and the reality is they almost always end up making things worse. You know, I'm I'm a pretty staunch libertarian, so I think my personal opinion is this is not speaking for the mortgage company I work for. My personal opinion is that government just fucks all these policies up. Excuse my language, and then they try to step in and be the answer. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example here in Los Angeles. A friend of mine does small sublot, um, small lot divisions, sub, small lot subdivisions. So they'll buy like three houses in a row, you know, maybe 6,000 square feet lots, three in a row. They'll demolish the homes and then they'll build what you and I would consider condos, but they'll put a one inch air gap in between each condo unit. So it's considered its own single family residence. That way you don't have to have a homeowner association. You don't have to have dues. You don't have to have all this common stuff that goes into the pain in the butt of building condos. So they'll build like 12 small lot subdivisions right next to each other. So a buddy of mine's building this small lot subdivision and he's at the end of a cul-de-sac and the cul-de-sac dead ends looking onto a major, major thoroughway in LA. So there's a 0% chance anything will ever be built beyond that cul-de-sac. The, um, the city inspector comes in and he says, yeah, you know, um, because you're the last house on the street that's building, we need you to go, and I'm going to get the zoning wrong, but you'll get the idea. We need you to go 20 feet further with the conduit, the sewers, the sidewalk, the whatever, the whatever. He's like, wait, what? He's like, we're the end. He's like, yeah, but, you know, city regulations right here, box 27A says you have to extend the sewer, the conduits, the whatever. He's like, dude, that's going to cost me like an extra 120 grand for a project that will never be built. He's like, I don't care. And they're sitting there arguing. He's like, do you ever think they're going to tear down Glendale Boulevard, a six lane highway that goes through the middle of like these two major metropolitan areas in Los Angeles? He's like, no, that's the regulation. And so, of course, my buddy, the developer, takes on, you know, $120,000 extra cost for these eight or 10 units he was building. He's now got to raise the cost of those units. And he has told me that in the county of Los Angeles, it is almost impossible to build housing where the entry point is less than a million dollars and make a profit. So what ends up happening, someone in the city office um, kind of leaks the plans to the LA Times. The LA Times writes up this whole, this huge article about this evil property developer who can't bring any units to the market for low to moderate income housing and how, you know, these evil developers that only want to build for rich people are causing prices in LA to spiral out of control. And it's like, no, like 50% of his cost is due to the fact that it took two years to get through plan check. He had to carry the cost of the land. Then the city just kept fucking with him and made him put on more and more stuff that was completely useless and unneeded. And so like government has all these rules to try to fix the problem. It actually exacerbates the problem. And then anybody who has to turn a profit, you know, like normal people, um, you know, they're stuck in this quagmire. And it's like, I don't see government coming up with anything other than maybe keeping interest rates artificially low, which they kind of need to because of the size of the debt. I don't see them having any other levers, you know, um, for all his faults. Uh, Trump did have one great policy that I was a huge fan of where every law that was passed, two regulations had to come off the books. And I think until large municipalities like LA County, LA City, um, you know, uh, whether they're state, federal or local governments, until they get to that point where it's like, hey, man, 
we got to shake out the code. We got to shake out the books here and be like, we got to get some of this garbage off the books so we can make it easier for business to thrive and developers to build. Um, I, I don't think we're going to see any solving of the problem at the government level. Um, you know, Larry Elders is a gentleman who ran for governor here in uh, California. He got he got destroyed. But one of the things that he was running on is he's like, hey man, I'm talking to like six different major developers around the state who can put 200,000 units into construction starting tomorrow if we can get a little bit of a reprieve on some of the environmental regulations or zoning laws or whatnot. And, and nobody even wanted to talk about it. So I don't, I don't see government solving any part of this problem anytime soon. I'm curious of your opinion on, and, and I, don't, I don't know how much you follow like the rental market and pricing and all of that, but the one thing that I've you know, really just been thinking about and we're having a lot of conversations around, if it gets to a point where people can no longer afford a mortgage because their debt to income ratio, their income and all that doesn't make sense, and then they have to go rent a house from the guy down the street, because they can't qualify for a mortgage. I mean, aren't they like they're they're paying the same amount anyway at some point? Maybe rents haven't caught up yet, but it's it's creeping up. And you know, here's one other version of this that I started seeing. We started selling properties that we bought, you know, four years ago for double what we paid for them on the investment side. Well, what that says in my head, when you minus out my costs at, you know, 30 to 40%, and then you look at the amount that they're paying and the return on equity and everything else, then that means rents have to basically increased by 50% just yeah, down the street. So I'm trying to yeah. reconcile, like, where does this get solved? Yeah, I, I don't see it getting solved. And of course, the first call will be for rent control, right? Uh, the, the government's state, local municipalities, they'll come in and they'll say, oh, see, these evil landlords, we need rent control. Well, you can point to any rent controlled area, you know, New York on the East Coast, Santa Monica on the West Coast, which have the highest rents in the country because rent control just doesn't work. You can read Thomas Sowell's book, uh, Basic Economics. He has like several chapters on how rent control is the most bastardized form of like political just uh, promise making that never pans out. I mean, they just have data on this going all the way back to like the 60s and 70s. Actually, I think the 50s and 40s, people in World War II, returning from World War II, you know, different, different areas, counties, cities trying out rent control as a way to keep rents down and it never works. It always backfires. Show me any, show me any rent controlled city in America and I will show you some of the highest rents in America. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know that there's a solution. And, and again, like I hate to keep going back to government, always the problem. Um, but there are, there are things that they could do with changing zoning laws to help, right. And, and help expedite the process to bring more rental units online. But it, I don't know. I don't know, man. I wish I wish there was a simple answer, but it's a very complicated solution, and uh, and it's it's above my pay grade. So I don't I don't see the problem getting fixed anytime soon. I see a lot more multi generational fam a uh, uh, lot more multi generational uh, family households in our future. You know, grandma owned a house since the nineteen fifties. She sells it so she has some cash to live off of and you know live with dignity in her older years. She lives with the kids, you know, the kids' kids stay with them well through college and beyond because they got to save so much more money for a down payment. And I think, you know, this idea of kids leaving their house at 18 and never coming back, that kind of doesn't exist in our world. I think I read some study the other day where something like 40 to 50% of kids somewhere between 18 and 30 make at least one return stop at their parents' house. And a lot of that has to do with the cost of housing. So I just think we're not going to have a solution. We're just going to see a lot of multi-generational 
homes. Yeah. Well, just even, you know, talking to my oldest son the other day, <clears throat> he's currently living in an apartment here in Austin with his girlfriend. And he was starting to, he's 21, almost 22. And he, we were out on a walk. We were doing 75 hard together. And he starts just asking me questions about, you know, I, well, I asked him, I said, are you guys going to renew your lease on your apartment? And he's like, well, we're talking about it. We might rent a house, but the houses are so expensive to rent. And then he starts asking me questions about buying a home. And I was like, well, you know, if it was 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I'd say, absolutely buy a home. I mean, Karen, and I bought our first home when we were 22, maybe 21. Um, but I was like, you know, I think you have to really think about it a little bit more nowadays. I just asked him this simple question because, you know, Karen, and I used to say, well, if we're going to be here for five or seven years or whatever, might as well buy. I asked him, I'm like, how yeah, long do you think, how long do you think you're going to be here? And he's like, well, I don't plan on leaving, but man, it's so expensive. And then I start, he's self-employed already and doesn't have a W2 income. Hannah's uh, she makes, you know, really good money, but she's kind of still going to, she's going to beautician school or whatever. She makes tips and all this stuff, but I'm like, it's going to be really challenging for them to qualify for a home loan in Austin, Texas. And it really, it made me start thinking about this up and coming generation, just to your point, like how many of them, so many of them can't buy a house at the age that we could buy a house. And it's just an interesting uh, dynamic to everything. I don't, most of them, I don't think are considering buying a house at the, at the age that we would have considered it. Yeah, I, I think, and, and look, I'm not blaming people your kids' age. I also have a 20 year old. Um, and I think, I, I don't, I, I always forget what generation is called, what generation, but there is like this 20 to 35 year olds, right? So we're talking about being born somewhere between like late 80s to early 2000s, where, you know, they, they've lived through a 20 year war, they've lived through a, a couple financial crises now, and they've basically got some really horrible version of like PTSD plus arrested development where they're like, I'm scared to invest and I'm moving back into my parents' house at 24 years old. And it's like, you know, we, we could argue the pros and cons of having kids and getting married and having a job when you're 21 versus 41. But there has been this thing that has kind of become popular and it's in the, um, you know, it's in the kind of social pop culture zeitgeist that like, oh yeah, no problem. You know, you can be married and happy uh, if you start out in your late thirties or early forties and, and women can just as easily get pregnant at 41 as they can 21, which is like just the biggest lie ever. Like biology still matters. And so we're, we're seeing this demographic shift where people are waiting until later in life to make those big decisions of getting married, having kids, buying houses, investing for retirement. And as you know, because of what you do, like the compound effect is working against these kids, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, my son does a bunch of uh, uh, social media marketing for me. He knows how to use Instagram and all the shit better than I do. So he doesn't need the money right now, thankfully. So the money that I pay him, we put directly into his IRA every year. Um, and for, I don't know, what's it? February 28th for about three weeks, I've been waiting for him to respond to an email to my financial planner. So I can give him $5,000 to put into his IRA. And he hasn't responded to the email. And I'm like, dude, I'm trying to give you $5,000. I mean, I guess he kind of earned it because of the social media work, but there is something where he's like, well, I don't know. I don't know where it should be invested. Like, you know, Bitcoin's down and, and the Robinhood apps is starting to look like a scam that like is just, you know, using consumer behavior to trick you into like using investing as like gambling and, and the stock market's expensive and, and Facebook just went down by 50%. And I'm like, dude, you're like, 
You've got this PTSD plus arrested development where you, you're acting like a child who can't respond to an email and you're scared to invest. Right now, it, at 20 years old, there's no bad investment you can make because you've got 50 years before mm-hmm. you've got to touch the money. And so I think it's really dangerous that we've kind of had this prolonged adolescence now with several generations, plus you know college degrees that basically qualify you to be a barista. Um, plus returning back home, plus not buying houses, plus society telling people, no, get married and have kids later or don't do it at all. And they're losing like this 10 to 15 to 20 years of compounding effects on their relationship, their retirement, you know, value in the housing market. Like, yeah, I would try to talk to your kid into like, yeah, find a way to buy a house. I don't know. I don't think property values in Austin are going down anytime soon. We can, we can piece together some mortgage or your dad can, can co-sign for you or something like I, I would tell them to try to get into a house because I don't think it's going to get any cheaper. Um, but who knows? All of this means that I'll all be completely wrong and the market will crash tomorrow. Well, I, I, you said so much there that was so valuable because we did continue on the conversation. You know, I, I, I'm in the middle of a real estate accelerator course right now that you know we're going to put out into a video library, and we had Diego Corzo come in and he was talking about house hacking, and you know that's one thing that like my daughter's 18 and she's talking about buying an Airbnb in in Austin, and I'm like. That that's amazing to me because you know Karen and I are building a house here, and it's so hard to get a second residence as an Airbnb. I'm like, I could totally do this with my daughter, and you know my oldest son, the one Dylan that we were talking to. I was like, that's one of the things that I brought up because they were talking about getting a bigger apartment or a house with friends, and I'm like, well, go buy a house and rent two or three of the bedrooms. And so there there is a way, like you said. I mean, you know, get get with Scott and and figure out how to get qualified. Did you read Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money? No, you know, it's so funny. I think it's actually right over here on my stack because um, I, I get so many book recommendations. I usually have to have it uh, recommended to me about four or five times before I read it, but I'm going to move it up the charts because I think you're like the third person that's recommended that. You know, so much of what you said just brought me back to, he spoke at a GoBundance event and then I, I bid on an auction and had a 90 minute call with him and Kara, you know, and he said a couple of things in there and he was talking about this. You'll, you're going to love this, the statistics and everything in it because he was talking about how important it is that like if you're born in this little window of like 3 years or 7 years or whatever just your psychology around money and you were alluding to that with this particular generation but the other thing that he said and I want to kind of bring this back to get your opinion on it he said things that have never happened before happen all the time and that's just really stuck with me right when we're just even like what we were talking about earlier like oh it's going to be different this time and him and I on the actual call had this conversation we got pretty in in depth about it because that was something that you know is normally said, and it's normally there's some truth to it. Uh, it's different this time, and we try to avoid that to some degree. But he made this comment. He said, "You know, if you would go back two and a half years, and I told you that you know some pandemic was going to uh, start in China with a bat, and China was going to you know weld all the people's doors shut, and they were no longer going to be shipping anything to the world, and pretty soon you could walk down the streets of Phoenix, and there was going to be no traffic out." And all the offices would be empty and we'd be quarantined and working from home and the government would mandate vaccines. And he's like, you would have been a raving, you would have said I was a raving lunatic, but look what happened. And so it's really caused me to step back and just really say, okay, what am I missing here? And he's, this is the thing that he said, and then I'll kick it over to you. He said, we don't know what's going to be the thing that happens next because it's, we're, we're in this weird period of time where you know, all of us real estate people and then finance people and whatever, it's like, oh, this has to happen. And I just think we're in a period of time where we don't know what has to happen. Nothing has to happen. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm going to butcher this quote, but I think it was Mark Twain said something like, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme, right? It's like, it's like you can kind of take lessons from the past. And, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Romney was running for president against Obama, and in the debates, he was talking about how China and Russia are our biggest, uh, our biggest fears to like geopolitical issues. And they could, you know, be stealing our intellectual property, um, manipulating uh, energy markets and, and currency markets. They could be invading, you know, sovereign nations to expand their footprint because both China and Russia have some serious demographic issues where they need to take on more land and more populace just to continue to basically grow the empire. And I don't know if you remember in 2012, he got laughed off the stage. You know, Obama had this really witty comeback where he said, hey, the Cold War just called and they want their 1980s uh, uh, geopolitics back or something to that effect. And then every media outlet in the country blasted Romney for being so out of touch. And we were in this postmodern war or postmodern world where there weren't going to be any world wars and the real concern was social justice. And Obama was the person who lead us there. Obviously, I would have preferred Romney as a president than Obama. But the point is that I don't think these people were intentionally disingenuous. I just think they didn't realize how much history was going to rhyme with the present. And now we're filming this in 2022 as Russia's just, you know, invading the Ukraine, has already told a bunch of other countries that like, hey, if you try to join NATO, we'll just invade you too. Uh, I mean, that's some really scary shit. And so, you know, on one hand, again, trying to balance two thoughts at once, it's like, well, I'm really fearful to have a lot of my money and assets. Maybe I should be hoarding cash right now because there's so much uncertainty. And then also look at like, well, in inflationary stages, uh, you kind of want to own assets instead of cash. And not that I want to be some type of war profiteer, but the reality is the stock market had insane returns during World War II because like wars are kind of good for the economy because you got to replace shit. You got to build bullets and butter and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's just it's just weird timing. None of us really know what's going to happen. You know, for, for our family, we just want to have a little bit in reserve, six to 12 months of like, oh shit, emergency money, and then spend as much money on income producing assets as we can, whether that's property, dividend paying stocks, you know, some of the investments you and I are privy to because of GoBundance and Justin Donald and every kind of um, access that we have to, to non-traditional deals. But it's like, you got to do something with your money. So you can't, you can't be scared all the time. <laughs> I love it. Well, and there's a part of me too, like, when when COVID hit, you know, I've I've been the crazy guy for a while. My 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 wife used to laugh at me because I mean I've had I've had food around and you know guns and bullets and I kind of subscribed to Kiyosaki's you know five Gs and the madness and but when COVID hit, it was really interesting to watch like how many people afterwards you were talking about PTSD and all that. Like we kind of change our thinking after the fact, but also like when we look at the other side of this, there's a part of me that's looking at COVID money printing. You know, people are over it, inflation. Everybody's talking about money now because it's really hitting us right between the eyes. Where at one point in time, inflation was like this, you know, uh, like ethereal concern, but now it's on everybody's mind. And then I'll never forget talking with Damian Lupo about two months ago. And when I think it was probably two months when the um, prime minister of England or whatever came out and said, no more, no more COVID regulations. And I was, Damian and I were like, uh oh. Like what's going on? And then all of a sudden you start seeing everybody like loosening up. And I just wonder, you were just saying this with inflation. I mean, even war, 
and I'm not saying that all this is tied together, but you know, do you benefit from it? I mean, at this point in time, the only way to really distract and print the amount of money that we need to print to to keep the machine going is to go to war. Yeah, now we're going down some deep, deep rabbit holes of conspiracy theory. Um, you know, again, the the libertarian in me wants to go to all the all the talking points, right? Like, no more endless wars. Bush lied, people died. Uh, war is just a distraction for the proletariat. You know, now I start sounding like a communist. Um, and, and and I think some of that is true uh, for sure. Whether it be a distraction, whether it be geopolitical meets world finance meets some grand conspiracy. Who knows? That shit's way over my head. And I don't even think I would want to know because if I want to know, I'd probably be a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, But the way I look at it is like so much of the stuff that I like to pontificate about and talk about on my podcast and, you know, have conversation with friends and even bitch about sometimes on Facebook at the end of the day, does it really affect me or my family or my coaching clients? Like, like at the end of the day, if you call me and you need a mortgage, yeah, geopolitically, you know, bombs in Ukraine can affect interest rates. And maybe Mike gets a 3.75 instead of a 3.5 or vice versa. But the bottom line is my job is to sell you the mortgage that's in front of me and educate you on whether or not you can afford the payment. So it's like, I love talking about this stuff. I like going deep in the weeds on the conspiracy theory and, and then rereading 1984 and seeing all the correlations and whatnot. But at the end of the day, does it yet currently, um, you know, affect me and my family and my coaching clients and my team and the people that I care about? Not really. I mean, look, if the United States gets invaded, I guess we're all taking out our Wolverine uh, t-shirts and rewatching uh, Red Dawn from the 1980s. And I've got, I also have plenty of supplies at the house just in case something crazy happens, uh, like an earthquake in California, which I still don't think we're particularly prepared for. Um, but, you know, I guess... It sounds kind of apathetic where like, I care, but I don't care. I want to be informed, but I don't want it to affect my day to day. If that makes any sense. Well, one of my mentors and it's simple advice and it just kind of, when you bring it down to it, he always says, get off your can, do what you can and can the rest. And I love that because I think we need to be thinking about it and trying to pay attention and everything else. And, you know, I got to write that down. I got to write that down. Say that again. Get off your can, do what you can and can the rest. (laughs) It's like, you know, just love that simple, simple, but you know, I, I think it's good to, you know, war game, some of this stuff out and have a contingency and everything else. But to your point, and I love you, you know, bringing it back to it. Uh, does it really affect us right now? And, I, and again, I understand the apathetic part because, you know, people are, people are dying, but at the same time, like, what can we do about that? What should we do about that? Last question. Um, there's been this I've heard several people say this, and I'm a huge George Gammon fan. And um, there's the guy that was, uh, I, I can't remember, I think his name's Tom Yang or something like that. He was part of the Fed desk. And so I heard him say this a while back. He's got a YouTube channel called The Fed Guy. I heard him say, in his mind, he was th- he thought that if they raised interest rates, and this isn't directly just to real estate alone, but if they raised interest rates, it could have a further inflationary impact because will it could it slow down the housing market a little bit maybe but there's not enough houses anyway and the people that are building and rental houses and all that kind of stuff would need to continue to build because housing is a problem but his further thought was there's a lot of liquidity that's out there right now whether it's private investors people that are sitting on cash 
that are trying to find a return or even banks that are sitting on liquidity that if the interest rate went up, more, more uh, money would flow into the system for investments, businesses, that kind of stuff. And it could put a further inflationary impact on it. Curious about your thoughts around that. Yeah, is George Gammon the whiteboard guy? Uh, yeah. Cap- Rebel capitalist. Yeah, yeah, I like that guy. Somehow, sometimes I stumble onto his YouTube stuff. And I'm like, oh, I-, I like the way this guy is talking because he's like, he's informational, he's educational, but he's just conspiratorial enough that I really, I dig that guy. He's, he, we're speaking the same language. Um, yeah, you know, that's interesting. I, um, I probably shouldn't use the bank's name. So I won't use the bank's name, but there's a large regional Southeast um, area bank, huge bank. Um, and a buddy of mine through dumb luck, like he had a friend who won a trip, who got a consult, like friend of mine, great guy, pretty successful was playing golf with, uh, three dudes from this bank in the Southeast region of America. Um, he was playing golf way above his pay grade. You know, these are the dudes that are making decisions. They're in the inner circles in the room, smoking cigars and like creating national and or international policy. And, you know, somewhere after a bunch of drinks and a couple of cigars, he's, he's good at playing the role. He's kind of a chameleon and they start opening up to him. And, and they were very open about the fact of like, Jesus, man, the billions of dollars we have on our balance sheet that are looking for returns is unfathomable. You know, we just, we're scared. Of, same thing we and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. Scared of the stock market feels a little top heavy, feels a little frothy. Uh, do we really want to get into the real estate game and be like, uh, I think it's BlackRock is the one that's been buying up portfolios of single family residents. And they're like, but you know, we're not investing international right now because China's trying to rip us off and maybe they'll invade Taiwan and what the hell are you going to do in Europe, you know, working with all these socialized countries. So they're just like frothing at the mouth for anything that can get them more than a four or 5% you know, return on investment. Cause like they've got their mortgage portfolio, right? They're, they're spinning off however many three, 400 basis points on, uh, on the servicing portfolio of mortgage loans and stuff. But that's just one small regional bank with billions of dollars in money that is seeking out capital or seeking out return on investment. You know, then you start looking at companies like Apple and, and that have done unprecedented amounts of stock buybacks because they're looking around and they're like, there's literally nowhere for us to invest these billions of dollars. We might as well buy back our own stock, which has returned you know eight or nine percent a year for the last 15 years. So it's like, yeah, you look at all this capital out there that's just sitting on the sidelines. Um, and I, I totally agree with this thesis that like if interest rates get back to where all of a sudden on a 30-year fixed mortgage, the private investors can start to make four and a half, 5% return long, long-term um, at a time when they're probably a little scared to invest in wherever. Um, yeah. Then, then you could actually see another flood to the market. I don't think we'll ever see another 2007, 2008, where you can get, you know, stated income, stated assets, stated whatever. But if private money starts to return to some of these deal desks, some of these, you know, mortgage, um, uh, mortgage products, we could see a big opening of availability for finances, right? Like your son, for example, the self-employed girlfriend still through beauty school. Well, you know, if some private equity firm can come in and get 5% on that mortgage because their dad might co-signs for them and pledges some assets or whatnot. Well, now all of a sudden that creates a buyer that wasn't in the market. And if we create a bunch of buyers that didn't used to be in the market, what happens? More demand, same problem with supply. 
inflation just kind of pushes the prices up even further. I mean, just anecdotally, myself and several other people, you know, you know, have all bought property in the last 12 months because we think like it's a good hedge against inflationary forces. And, you know, we could guess wrong because I don't have the money to buy 10 properties in 10 different, you know, uh, uh, kind of um, uh, geographical areas. But I, I think just buying assets, real assets, especially any cash producing assets, I think it's just going to be the way to go forward because I don't think inflation is going nowhere, man. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is, this is your wheelhouse, but when you look at something that you said earlier, you know, people, people are putting the right amount of money down there. They, people have equity. Um, so even if there was, even if there was a little bit of a slowdown or, you know, not as many homes are being listed or, you know, bought, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to have a, I don't think we're going to have some kind of crazy. So even if prices adjusted a little bit for a period of time, I, I just don't see it happening again the way that it did before. Yeah. I mean, if prices go down across the board, the entire country, every property, 10% tomorrow, other than the media frenzy, which could create kind of an old school run on the bank. Like a lot of people think Wash Mutual, uh, the bank where I used to work, died because they wrote bad mortgages. They actually didn't. Wash Mutual went out of business because of the negative media attention. There was an old school run on the bank, like people coming in and taking their depositor, uh, deposits out and then the bank couldn't meet their depository requirements for the amount of loans and financial products that they had. So if tomorrow secretly or silently, there was a 10% hit to all equity on all homes in all of America, the vast, vast majority of homeowners wouldn't know the difference. I mean, it's just the reality. Of course, there would be the media frenzy and that's that then becomes this whole other self-fulfilling prophecy. But we've got a lot of we've got a lot of um, give or a lot of play. Like there's that, that rubber band can, can, can stretch pretty far with where we are right now. Anybody that's bought in the last 14 years, again, properly underwritten, real skin in the game, real down payment, strong appreciation. Like everybody I know, including every client I've done a loan for the last 12 or 13 years could afford to take 10, 15, 20% hit to their equity. And it would suck. And it would be a little devastating mentally, but you know, these things have a way of working themselves out, going cyclical and rebounding. So I think, I think we're in a good spot. Well, we are up against the top of the hour. I want to make sure I give you a chance to, uh, you know, you mentioned a book, where do people find you? I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your wisdom and I think it's timely. So what's the best way for people to reach out and get a hold of Scott? Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, pretty much everything I do, the podcast, the coaching, the social media interaction, it's all sponsored by the fact that I do mortgages. So if anybody wants to get in touch with me, it's just Scott at Scott Groves team or find Scott Groves on social media. Not the one who's a self-help coach in Australia who thinks he's Tony Robbins and has seven followers. Nice guy, I'm sure, but he's stolen everything scottgroves.com. So you got to look for Scott Groves, the obnoxious one in Los Angeles and Nevada. We're back and forth, my wife and I, between our LA house and our uh, Henderson, Nevada house quite a bit. So yeah, find me on Facebook. That's where I do a lot of communication. And then if you need anything mortgage related, mortgage coaching related, you want to buy a copy of the book, go on Amazon. But if you, if you just want to talk about anything that we talked about today, I, I love this kind of stuff. It's just Scott at scottgrovesteam.com. Well, I genuinely meant it. I've been following you for a while and um, it's the, you know, the information that you're putting out, especially with all the volatility and everything going on, everybody's looking for an answer. And so I've really appreciated the, the stuff that you're putting out there. So thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate you, Mike. Cheers. 
If you found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you'd take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.